Welcome to Wealthy Behavior, talking money and wealth with Heritage Financial, the podcast that digs into the topics, strategies, and behaviors that help busy and successful people build and protect their personal wealth. I'm your host, Sammy Azuz, the president and CEO of Heritage Financial, a Boston-based wealth management firm working with high net worth families across the country for longer than 25 years. Now let's talk about the wealthy behaviors that are key to a rich life. Welcome to the September edition of the Wealthy Behavior Podcast, where I talk to our Chief Investment Officer, Bob Weiss, about what's going on in the markets right now and things that you should know going forward as investors. Bob, how was your summer? Uh, it was great. You know, hearing summer in the past tense is uh, a little sad. It was nice, but, um, you know, fall's going to be busy and it was a nice summer. What are you going to be busy with this fall? Uh, just back to school stuff with the kids uh, in school and all their activities, which they basically head off in the the um, in the summer. How about a, from an investment standpoint, what are you guys looking at uh, and what do you want to accomplish before year end? Yeah, a lot of projects going on. Um, probably the, the biggest is looking into 2024. So capital market assumptions and thinking about any portfolio changes as we restructure um, portfolios based on our outlook. Um, and then there's some travel too, some conferences, uh, fall is a popular time of year for investment conferences. So I'll be traveling a little bit, um, have a conference, um, in September, two in September and then one in October. So that'll be keeping me busy as well. What do you get out of those conferences, Bob? A combination of, um, the, the content, what you're really supposed to go there for, you know, the, <laughs> where you, you see, you know, quality people up there presenting, you know, good ideas and you, you, you get some nuggets. Um, but there's also value, in my opinion, in the networking where you're sitting with industry peers, you know, like-minded individuals and um, talking in between sessions, you know, what'd you think about that? And, you know, what are you guys doing? What are your big challenges? And, and just um, learning from other people around the country who are in a similar seat. And um, typically you add all that up and in a conference, you'll, you'll get a few good takeaways. Awesome. So you talked a little bit about capital market assumptions for 2024. That's a topic we've covered on the podcast, but maybe as a quick reminder, what are capital market assumptions? What do they do for you and, and how do they lead to portfolio implications for investors? Uh, and and maybe just a little bit of a preview of if you think things have changed this year uh, from your expectations going forward. Yeah. So capital market assumptions or the acronym commonly used as CMAs, um, but those are the assumptions that you are applying to asset classes, um, specifically risk and return. So, for example, what are you expecting for return from U.S. stocks and what's the level of risk in U.S. stocks? And then you go through every asset class. So U.S. stocks, international stocks, emerging market stocks, different types of bonds, alternatives, et cetera. And um, just coming many, up. Bob, how many asset classes? Uh, about 20. Okay. So there's a you know, pretty big list um, that we use. And I mean, it's kind of like baking, like building a portfolio. You got all your ingredients and you, you build out the characteristics and you, you put it together um, to, to get the, the, the right portfolio. So um, the inputs matter um, a ton. Um, so it's, it's a big process. Um, as far as what it'll look like, my initial reaction was I'm not going to answer that, but I'll answer <laughs> it um, because uh, um we have seen interest rates go up this year a little more. So last year was a big change in interest rates and um, they've continued to increase a little bit this year. Fortunately, they went up enough last year that the yield has been bigger than the offset 
in price from uh, an additional increase, but nonetheless, looking into 2024 and beyond, um, one change that I think we could expect would be higher bond expected returns. Um, even, the, even higher than the beginning of 2023? Yeah, because yields oh. are higher. Okay. Um, on the equity side, equities have um, overachieved this year. Um, you know, U.S. markets up 18%. So um, that might bring down the expected return um, in equities when they, they come off such a strong year. Um, probably not too material, but we might see a slight tick up in bonds, slight tick down in stocks. So that gets us to a debate that you and I had offline as you were helping me with a blog post about higher yields and what does that mean and how investors process higher yields and whether that's a threat competitively to people's desire to buy stocks. So before we get to the debate, maybe walk us through the the, the baseline assumption that when yields are higher, this means X for stocks. When yields are lower, this means Y. Yeah, so the the 10-year treasury is the you know commonly cited um you know bond measure when people talk about yields and the 10-year treasury yields around four and a quarter right now. And to put in context, it it touched around three and a quarter in early April this year. So since April, we've seen about a one percent increase in the yield. And a good part of that's been um more in the last a couple months. Some people talk about that and say that. Um, you know, rising yields and bonds is it, it's a, um, I guess a way to put it is stocks compete with bonds. So investors are choosing, you know, investors have money and they want to invest and they look, should I buy real estate? Should I buy stocks? Should I buy bonds? And when bond yields are higher, then investors um, should require a higher return from stocks. So if you use extremes, if bonds are yielding 2%, then you might be happy with 7% in stocks. If bonds yield in 7%, you shouldn't be happy with 7% in stocks. So um, there's what's called the equity risk premium, which is the spread you get um, over a risk-free rate um, for investing in stocks over bonds. And um, typically it's like 4% to 6%. And that's um, something you should see to, to take the, the risk that you invest in stocks. So when bond yields go up, which we've seen, that can lead to stock prices going down if investors are acting rationally. And my pushback on that was I've seen a lot of good investment approaches in my lifetime, asset allocation approaches, shouldn't say lifetime in my career, I wasn't really looking at this in elementary school. And the idea that investors directly determine their stock market exposure using the 10-year treasury can be overblown. I feel like investors either have static allocations mostly uh, and they're not very tactical, or they use what opportunities they're seeing in the stock market to primarily drive their stock market exposure. So you could back into seeing fewer stock opportunities because yields are higher, and whether you're using a discounted cash flow model or or some other things, you know, you, you're you're ending up with less attractive investment opportunities in equities. But I, I feel like that's more done at the margins, and it's not. Oh boy, you know, yields are six ten years at six percent. You know, we really want our equities not to be sixty-five. We want it to be fifty-eight. Yeah, I think that's right. It's done at the margin. Um, most people will have a, a, a range where they'll be in stocks, and like you said, could be target sixty, and they'll be plus or minus five percent. But they're not going to change dramatically based on it. Um, but but you're saying the combination of two, though, slightly lower return expectations potentially for U.S. stocks 
given their valuations and how well they're done, they've done and higher yields on fixed income may lead to some some adjustments in the mix between the two. Yeah, that's okay. right. Okay. What are other asset classes? I know you said you know there's 20 or so in the in the CMAs. You don't allocate to all 20. So what typically knocks out an asset class from being included in a portfolio? So yeah, we look at um, risk return and correlations are the the main data points. So an example of something that um, we haven't allocated to that would fit in there are commodity future contracts. So commodity futures, that's like um, if you want to invest in kind of the price of corn and wheat and oil. And, and reason why we have not is the volatility of commodities is uh, higher than stocks and the expected return is about inflation. So your return is bonds are lower, your risk of stocks are higher, and then your correlation is pretty highly correlated to stocks on average over time. So when, a, when the economy is good, typically inflation's higher, stocks doing well. When the economy is bad, you typically in deflationary environments and commodities are going down. So you add all that up and you say, I don't, I don't really see the point of including this asset class in the portfolio. So we have the data, we look at it. Um, you know, the, the one other point to end that is it's um, we think there's better ways to get exposure to those assets. And that's like through owning farmland, infrastructure, timberland investments, like own the farm, not the futures on corn. Um, so we still get the exposure just in a way that you know generates cash flow. That's one example of something that's in there. Another, give you one more emerging market debt. We've looked at it and, and we may allocate in the future, but to date we have not. And the main reason is we have exposure to emerging markets through equities. And we have a healthy emerging market equity exposure and we'd have to cut that back to increase emerging market um, debt. And at the same time, emerging market debt, those are bonds. And we've tried to have more of a view that let your bonds be your bonds and that's your safe money. And you know when things get ugly, you want your bonds to hold up. And emerging market, that's a pretty risky spot in the bond market. So while the there the, the portfolio statistics actually look a little better, a little more compelling. Um, but again, when you get to the correlation, it's um, closer to equity than bonds frequently, because when things go bad, emerging markets can sell off um, even the bonds. So um, those are some of the considerations. So to use your recipe analogy, those asset classes are like parsley. They're basically adding nothing to the portfolio at best. Unless you're a huge parsley Par fan, I did not mean to offend. Oh, par parsley, yeah. I, when I make my bolognese sauce, I, I typically cheap out and skip the parsley. Yeah, there you go. All right, so uh, we jumped into it uh, a little bit in terms of how the bond market has moved. We saw some sharp uh, yield changes in August. But how's the market been doing year to date? What did investors miss if they weren't paying attention last month? Yeah, markets uh, done great. So I'll just run through some numbers. Looking at the U.S. Uh, total market, Russell 3000 year to date up about 18%. The last month down two. Last three months up eight and a half percent. So just really strong year for the U.S. stock market. And I don't think we've even seen a 10% pullback this year. Hmm. So despite a lot of headlines that have been concerning and reasons to be concerned. Um, it's been a, a strong year. Um, overseas, um, also strong, just not as strong. So like developed international equity up about 10.5%. That's the MSCI World XUSA. Um, last one month down about four. Uh, so strong year up 10.5 there. Emerging markets, um, 
the worst of these three regions, um, year to date up about four and a half percent and the last month down six. So they were up 10 and and gave back about 6% in the last month. Um, And then looking at bonds, bonds are up about 1.4% year to date. And the last month they gave back about 64 basis points. So this is the Bloomberg US aggregates down 64 basis points over the last month. So it was up about two, now it's up about 1.37. So decent return for bonds, not, not quite collecting the yields because yields have risen, which has led to a price decline, but the yield's been strong enough to ops, offset the price decline in the face of uh, rising yields. Um, so, and then maybe just looking at um, real estate, which we could talk about too a little bit. Um, uh, REITs are interesting, real estate investment trust. Um, last year, 2022, they were down 24%. This year, they're up about 5%. So we're seeing um, the publicly traded real estate market perform um private real estate is down in the single digits here today and why is that bob is that partially because publicly traded REITs trade more in line with the stock market than you would expect as a real estate investor yeah so with uh real estate it's interesting in in private real estate they just don't do a good job valuing the assets to market at least as good as the public market does Um, the public market's forward-looking. So like last year, public market in real estate sold off and um, with higher interest rates is one of the um, main reasons maybe seeing that inflation would be slowing. Um, but the private real estate market was up last year. And, you know, we were questioning that and saying, is it really up? And, um, it, but now this year it's it's turning a little bit. And you saw the same thing back in the 0709 period. So if you um, think back then, and you know, for listeners who maybe weren't in the markets, 2008 was a, a very negative year for the stock market, and then it bottomed in March of 2009. And 2009 ended up being a good year as markets bottomed in March and rallied for the remainder of the year. So stocks were down in 08, up in 09. Private real estate was up in 08 and down in 09. So it lagged by a year. And we're seeing the same thing again this year. Understood. So the other thing that investors may have missed in August was the Jackson Hole meeting and Chairman Powell's speech there. I know you didn't miss it. What were your takeaways? Yeah, so Jackson Hole, it's it's an economic summit in um, you know, Jack, Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and a uh, three-day meeting. And the chairman of the Fed typically gives a speech. And um, last year... Uh, stocks went down about 20% after Powell's speech. I and remember that. This is last yeah. year. This is 2022. Yep. And he um, introduced, a, I think, the phrase economic pain um, is coming. It was a, a pretty negative speech. Um, he talked about job market um, imbalances, labor market imbalances. And it was just a, it's like, we're going to increase rates and we're going to, you know, kind of hit the economy to stop inflation no matter what. And it's not going to be fine. So look out. And, you know, markets went down. So coming off, you know, that conference last year, I was like, oh boy, here we go again. What's he going to say? And uh, I think he, um, and the setup's different um, with data that's come out. Um, but also I think he did not want to um, send markets down by 20%. So it was pretty much a non-event. Um, he didn't really say anything new um and i think his probably goal was to 
um, do no harm um, in either direction because he is sensitive. You know, if stocks go up 10% after the speech, that's not a success in his opinion either. So it, it turned out to be basically a non-event. And, you know, just connecting that to why the setup was a little different this time is we've received um, some more economic data that came out last week. Um, and uh, last year, we talked about um, the labor market imbalances that he was talking about. And the the number that um, they were looking at was the ratio was um, job openings divided by unemployed um, people or people looking for work. And last year was over two, it was up to 2.1. So there were 2.1 jobs for every one person looking for work. So if you think about it, if you're looking to, I don't know, be a cook in a kitchen, there are two restaurants you know, with that job and you, you can negotiate between the two. Well, how much are you going to pay me? How much are you going to pay me? Well, the guy across the street is saying this and, and you have pretty good leverage and that leads to wage inflation. And then other people at the office find out how much you're making and they get raises. And that, that leads to an inflationary spiral. That's imbalance in the labor markets. So that ratio had been around two for a good part of last year. Um, last week, um, we received improving data on both parts of that equation, more people entered the labor market. So the unemployment rate went up from three and a half percent to 3.8%. So more people are looking for work, which is great because you got all those health wanted signs out there. Now we have people who are looking for work. Um, so up to 6.4 million unemployed people. And um, meanwhile, job openings has been, continued to decline. It was up to 12 million and now job openings are down from 12 million down to 8.8 million. Hmm. So it's been, a, it didn't go from 12 to 8.8 in a month, but it's been steadily declining. Um, so that ratio is now 1.38, 1.38 jobs for every one person looking for a job. Healthy is one to 1.2. Okay. So uh, that was a long winded answer, but um, the point is, you know, Powell didn't need to be as uh, scary this meeting because things are improving on, on that front. On that front. And we haven't had an inflation reading in a while that we haven't addressed through the podcast. So we can skip that maybe for now. But where are you on recession watch, soft landing, pick any other buzzword that you want to utilize or, or, or phrase? Yeah, Um I mean, on, on recession watch, the, the leading economic indicators that had a kind of a perfect track record have never gone um, pointing or calling for a recession without one happening um, as long as they've gone now. So I, I'd say that that signal is you know, TBD um, and uh, the, the soft landing may be happening. We're, we're seeing um, it, you know, the, the, the conditions that the, the Fed would like to see. Um, so um we're you know sticking to the course and not you know making um investment decisions based on trying to you know call a recession in the next six months or so and what is it that the fed wants to see bob more balance in the labor market moderating inflation anything else i mean th their dual mandate is um healthy labor market and um uh, price stability so it's really the focus on inflation getting down to two um, and it's in the three to four range right now. So they're almost there. There are some headwinds still, but you know, things are looking better, especially on the labor market front. People were very hard on the Fed and Powell 
the last year, two years, which is typical, I think, with most Fed uh, chairs, if we end up in a "quote unquote" soft landing, and we, you know, get progress on inflation and continue the path we're on, what will be your overall grade for the Fed and for Powell? Yeah, that I don't think he can ever get a pass for uh, transitory inflation and just being so dismissive of it. Back in 2021, when the the economy was just on fire with all the stimulus and just to make nothing of it and then do a 180. But that being said, if he you know pulls off the soft landing, which you know for our listeners is, is basically solving high inflation without causing a recession, which has never been done before by a Fed chairman, you know you, you got to hand it to him on that front. So. Why why would you not give him a pass on transitory? Because I guess it depends on what your definition of transitory is. But if inflation, let's say if if 3% or lower is where we are going to be, even though he may have been wrong about the Fed not having to do anything to combat inflation, didn't it ultimately prove transitory and less persistent than his critics were fearing? So I think there, there's an element of saying, oh, in the end, you were right. It was transitory all along. We're just not patient enough to let it play out. Um, but he could have acted sooner. For example, not buying mortgages yeah. um, when the housing market was red hot. So I, th- I think it's a little bit of a, um, you know, you, you get a cut and you could have just washed it and put Neosporin on and been fine. But instead, I told you to do nothing. And you end up in the ER and yes, I saved an amputation in the ER by, you know, doing some miraculous procedure. It's like that, that shouldn't have been necessary. You could have done it with simple hot water soap and a Band-Aid um, by being less stimulative early on, a little more restrictive even early on and a, a smoother ride rather than the Fed, like, you know, gas break, gas break. That That's not healthy for anyone. I've uh, I, I, and I agree with that, and I've watched three Fed chairs in my professional career, and I don't think any of them, just like I don't think anybody else, can predict the economy, which is why we always talk about don't make changes to your portfolio based on your macro view. You can't do it. All the last three, they don't anticipate what's going on, and early on, their assessments are actually inaccurate about what's going on, but they ultimately end up you know, solving the problem. So I feel like if you grade him on a curve, he's no different. Oh, I guess it's four Fed chairs. He's no different than the than the prior four. But if you're grading him on the ability to, you know, have a great crystal ball, I don't think anybody has one. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a good comparison. You look at uh, Greenspan, yeah, Bernanke. Yellen. Yellen kind of had a... Well, I guess Uneventful, it, maybe? Yeah, I mean, Greenspan had the tech bubble. Bernanke had the financial crisis. And then Powell, who dealt with this inflationary period, and you're right, all three of them just missed it. But then, you know, now you're dealt this hand and it's evident and they got us out of it. Yeah, stacks up on, on par, I suppose, with those. But Anyway, I'm not, a, I guess I'm not a big Fed basher. I, I don't think that they can see anything that other people can't, but they tend to fix stuff after the fact. It's, yeah. You can That's- bash them if you want. I mean, I just joke, like everyone and, and his or her uncle knew inflation was high in 2021. And just to have your head in the sand when your job is two things, price stability and labor and inflation's through the roof and you're not doing anything. You're actually doing the opposite. You're, you're putting gas on the fire. You're, you're buying back mortgages. 
in 2021 when the housing market was on fire it just it seemed a little ridiculous but i, I do yeah no I, I i agree with that and i i think in uh, in bernanke's time they were worried about inflation way too late into the stuff that had uh, started bubbling into the great financial crisis and they weren't willing to cut uh rates um that was kramer's famous rant right they know nothing that was basically the fed was so late to the game Anyway, we don't need to grade uh, the Fed any longer. You talked about the employment report, the jolts report, the impact of that. You also wanted to chat a little bit about housing because surprisingly it's still up, but maybe for quirky reasons, although you and I may disagree about that. Yeah, housing, I mean, it's a common question we get from clients too. So I just think it's something that's good to cover and, and is interesting. So Case Schiller, 20 city composite um, reading for July came in at a 92 basis point increase for the month, 0.92%. Um, and then there's also a, um, what's this, the Schiller um, U.S. National Home Price Index up 65 basis points, 0.65% for the month of June. So pretty big increases for one month of home prices. And um, to put it in context, this is the fourth or fifth month in a row of um, pretty healthy increases following a seven to eight month um, period of a decline in prices. So the, the residential market um, definitely appears to be strong. The caveat is it's on a low volume. Right. So there's fewer listings, so low inventory, fewer transactions, low volume. Um, when you compare this year to any of prior, you know, five or six years, it's like 15, 20% below average so you have fewer people listing their houses to for sale because presumably because they have a you know most people have a t like two three four percent mortgage and the idea of moving to then take out a seven percent mortgage isn't attractive so people are staying put but the, the houses that are transacting are, are doing so at um you know pretty high uh, valuations it seems and so so that's inflationary so just something to keep an eye on yeah and for those curious because it has been a fascinating conversation lately in terms of why are mortgage rates where they are? Where could they be going? Our next podcast episode, will have somebody who focuses on fixed income, mortgage-backed securities, the mortgage market to help us sort it out. Where you and I maybe differ a little bit on real estate, because I, I do see it as prices are still strong on uh, lower volume because there's there's just not a lot of listings which you know you touched on with with where mortgage rates are I feel like if mortgage rates back down more people would list and prices would soften uh so you know what do I know like again if the Fed doesn't have a good crystal ball neither do I but lower rates if that's if higher rates are what keeping people from listing lower rates should drive more activity and and then maybe you get some equilibrium between sellers and buyers It'd be interesting to to see and I'd be Interested to hear Ken's thoughts on that, our, our next guest. Uh, yeah. Looking forward to hearing that one. So interesting to see, is uh, is that your polite way of saying, I don't think you're right, Sammy? It, it's a tough one. Uh, I am re I really don't know. Yeah. Um, I can see both sides. I mean, the, the argument that I'd make against it is if there's lower rates, the person who is going to sell their home um, to move, then they're, they're in the market as a seller and a buyer and probably buying a bigger home. And... Therefore, that's adding it's it's a net zero effect or even effect on the, the strengthening um, demand side, as opposed to it's the people who have say two homes 
and are just like, okay, I'm giving up on my vacation house. That's what brings prices down when you go from say two to one or someone passes away and you, you know, they're not coming into the market as a buyer as well. So if someone's coming into the market, both as a seller and a buyer, that probably should not have much of a net effect. And that's, I feel like what lower rates would do. It would be people coming in as sellers and buyers. So you'd have more transactions, but I don't know that the net effect would be that significant. So you're saying the equilibrium would be maintained. You, you'd right. have, yeah, yeah. It's, it's a good point. That's why we, we don't know and we don't invest based on our thinking that we do know where it's going, but uh, it, it will be an interesting conversation. Mortgage rates are elevated. They are, you know, they're, they're based, I think, on, you know, yields and then a spread over a yield like the 10-year treasury. And even that spread is elevated right now. So I am curious to to learn a little bit more about why and maybe give our listeners some perspective on when and how, what would happen to you know allow mortgage rates to back down a little bit. Did you have anything you wanted to touch on, Bob, on commercial real estate? Yeah, on the commercial real estate front, um, thought it'd be worth talking about a little bit since um, we do have investments in that area. And um, it's been a FAQ from clients over the last couple of years, really, that people like to talk about it. You can split commercial real estate into two parts, one that's very strong, then one that's a little weaker. So in the, in the, the strength area, um, multifamily is, is a big sector in commercial real estate. So that's like apartments. And when you think about what we just talked about with uh, homeownership um, affordability being tough and housing prices being high with mortgage rates, um, you know, apartments have done well. People have to live somewhere. So um, there's been strong demand for apartments that's done well. And another area in commercial that's done well is industrial. So industrial, think like big warehouses for e-commerce. E-commerce is doing great. Um, that's not going away. Um, and then also data centers and life sciences. So those are all areas in, in um, commercial real estate that, that are doing well. On the uh, softer side, office is, is a mixed story. Um, if you look, say, in like major cities like Boston, um, downtown, you know, high quality buildings like the Prudential Center, I, I think those buildings, they're, they're doing fine. They, they, they will be OK. Um, you know, one of the tenants in um, the, the Prudential Center is a, a big law firm and they just um, told their lawyers, you have to be in person four days a week now. There, there was a three day policy and now it's a four day policy. Clients expect to see you. Even if it's a Zoom, they want to see the office in the background, not a fake screen and not, not your kitchen. So you, you see that demand. It's more um, in the suburbs, I'd say, or um, you know, lower tier markets, more rural markets, smaller office buildings. And that's the stuff that we don't invest in. It's smaller scale. That's things that you know clients might own personally, you know, buildings that might just cost a couple million dollars, something like that. And that's where you'll, you'll see the weakness because you just don't have the, the, the big employers and um, the, the scene to drive people as much to work. Um, and then retail, you know, is, is also mixed. And then you add it all up. Um, and one thing that, that is difficult for real estate is interest rates. So the story used to be in real estate that you'd buy properties that would yield 4%, 5%, and you'd finance it at 3%, 4%. And there's a, a spread on that. So you're, you're applying leverage to a, a pretty good, um, what's called a cap rate, the kind of the yield on real estate. And you're, you're levering that and uh, you get a good return now if, because valuations haven't moved much. I said they went up last year and they're down a little bit this year, but they basically haven't moved much. They're still yielding around four to 
But financing, if you're taking out new financing, 7%, 8%, the leverage doesn't work on the yield. So that's where um, you know, we're a little concerned that as you see transactions take place, if an investor is buying a building, financing it at 7 or 8%, um, they're not going to underwrite that if it's only yielding 4%. Because that's tough. You need a lot of appreciation to um, cover that um, the, the cost of debt there. So we've pulled back in commercial real estate um, in areas where there have been liquidity in the portfolio, um, with the exception of REITs, where we think that was all priced in last year. Got it. Yeah, um, REITs are up this year. Got it. Great. Thank you, Bob, for that overview. It looks like we were able to touch on multiple asset classes today, including commodities futures, which we've never discussed before. Any last takeaways for listeners who are looking to get some either planning or portfolio checkup items done between now and the end of the year? Nothing comes to mind. I'm excited about the upcoming uh, podcast with um, Ken. And um, you've done some other good ones recently, too, that, that I've listened to. So, you know, Gabby from JP Morgan, I thought she was great. Um, so we've got some good content. She talked about investing in, in China Yep. And just things going on with China, you either hear that it's a you know big competitive threat or that it's slowing down and you know it's it stays in the sun or over. That's an exaggeration, but she was able to give a lot of great uh, perspective. So yeah, no, I appreciate that, Bob. I appreciate you coming on every month. I get a lot of people who reach out and uh, say how much they enjoy it. So without further ado, thanks for sharing your insight today, Bob. Talk okay. to you later. Thanks, Amy. How to build your next million. Heritage Financial's ebook teaches investors about the tools and strategies that can help them save, keep, grow, and protect their assets. This free ebook can be accessed in this episode's show notes and on our website at heritagefinancial.net. Thank you for listening to Wealthy Behavior. If you found the conversation useful, please leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share this episode so those around you can live a rich life too. We appreciate your feedback and questions. Please email us at wealthybehavior@heritagefinancial.net. For more insights, subscribe to our weekly blog at heritagefinancial.net and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. Check out my personal finance blog at thebostonadvisor.com. Wealthy Behavior is produced by Kristen Kastner and Michelle Kakinis. This educational podcast is brought to you by Heritage Financial Services, LLC, located in the greater Boston area. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast or that of the speaker are subject to change and do not constitute investment advice or a recommendation regarding any specific product or security. There is no guarantee that any investment or strategy discussed will be successful or will achieve any particular level of results. Investing involves risks, including the potential loss of principal.